Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. This week's episode is special. We start off with a birthday celebration, celebrating the 150th birthday of a major milestone in chemistry. Then Professor Scott Miller tells us about the past, present, and future of asteroids and the possibility of them hitting the Earth. Then we've got a short story about these eight-foot-tall termite mounds recently discovered in Brazil and finish up with a startling report about a disease in Ohio that is attacking American beech trees. We'll finish with a poem on this topic, specifically written for this show. But first, let's celebrate a birthday! Hey, you know the periodic table of chemical elements, right? When you took science classes in high school or college, especially in your chemistry classes, your teachers probably had the periodic table hanging on the wall somewhere in the classroom. Well, guess what? 2019 has been declared the year of the periodic table of chemical elements. That's because we are celebrating the 150th birthday of the modern periodic table of elements. Now, a chemical element is a pure substance that cannot be chemically interconverted or broken down into simpler substances. And chemical elements are the primary constituents of matter. Now each element is distinguished by its atomic number. That's the number of protons in the nuclei of the atoms for that element. There are currently 118 known chemical elements. The first 98 of those 118 occur on Earth naturally. The other 20 elements, that's number 99 through 118, they can only be synthesized in the laboratory or in nuclear reactors. It was back in 1789 when the famous French chemist Antoine Lavoisier tried to put together an organized list of the 33 known chemical elements at that time. He categorized these 33 elements into one of four different categories, the gases, the metals, the nonmetals, and what they called the earths, E-A-R-T-H-S, the earths. So that was in 1789. And then there's John Newlands in England. He came up with a clever approach in the 1860s to classify what was then the 56 known elements. And he used what he called the law of octaves. He basically realized that if you list the elements by order of atomic weight and their chemical and physical properties, like if it was a gas or a metal, They could be arranged into intervals of eight, just like in music, and so he called it the law of octaves. But the real inventor of the modern periodic table was a Russian chemist by the name of Dmitry Mendeleev back in 1869, 150 years ago. Mendeleev followed Newland's approach of listing the chemical elements in rows and columns in order of atomic weight and he would start with the new row or column when the characteristics of the elements would begin to repeat again. 
Now by this time there were 60 chemical elements known. Don't forget we have 118 now. Now Mendeleev made two important decisions in his design for his periodic table and his table is the one we're essentially still using. The first decision he made is that he left gaps in the table when it seemed like there should be an element there even though it hadn't been discovered yet. So he predicted elements like gallium and germanium even though gallium and germanium hadn't even been discovered yet. That's pretty brilliant. The second decision that Mendeleev made was to sometimes diverge from the convention of listing the elements only in the order of their atomic weight. So for instance he swapped tellurium and iodine. They should have been in one order on the periodic table if you're looking at just their atomic weight but he realized that they had chemical properties that were more appropriate to swapping them on the table and so that's what he did. Mendeleev's periodic table organized groups of similar elements into the same column on his table and he ended up with eight columns which means he's still following the law of octaves I guess but it was later chemists who actually modified the approach to end up with the current table that we have. It was the American chemist Horace Deming in 1923 who developed the standard table that are used in schools now with 18 columns, not just eight, and seven rows. There are still basically eight categories of chemical elements and they are generally lined up by columns. And so in a way they've kept the law of octaves. The first column, for instance, are the alkali metals, and the last column on the table are the noble gases. The 2016 chemistry Nobel laureate Ben Feringa said once that the periodic table is a hero of chemistry and that Mendeleev taught us how we can use this table to build molecules and materials in the lab by combining different elements. To quote Feringa, we scientists greatly value the periodic table because it is our common language. Thanks to Mendeleev, it is also a powerful guide to making the compounds of the future. Unquote. Well, check out the February 1, 2019 issue of Science Magazine. It's devoted to the 150th birthday of the periodic table of chemical elements. In their introduction to this special edition, the editors say, quote, a large periodic table is frequently displayed in classrooms but is often placed too high on the wall for anyone to make out more than the element symbols and atomic numbers. Periodic tables hung like this really serve as banners or flags and declare to anyone who enters that room that we're doing science here." Unquote. Happy 150th birthday periodic table! Scott here. Meteor showers are fun to watch because they take no equipment. All one needs is to be outside as the evening moves toward the time of peak activity, usually during the early morning hours, and slowly watch the sky. If a group is watching, having everyone facing in slightly different directions, calling out when a streak of light appears, can make for an interesting competition. Patience is a necessity, of course, because one never knows exactly when that next streak will occur, nor where in the sky the streak might appear. Every so often, a very bright meteor streaks through the sky. This could be during a shower event or even on some other clear night. These fireballs can be caused by larger chunks than the material that causes the streaks of a meteor shower. 
The larger the chunk of material, the brighter the fireball may be. If big enough, it can even reach the surface of the earth. Usually this type of event may result in some recoverable pieces. Depending on the impact, it may cause a small impact site. In the past, some of these events resulted in people being hit. Mrs. E. Hewlett Hodges in 1954, for example. In 2013, in Chelyabrinsk, Russia, over a thousand people were treated from glass cuts when a meteorite exploded overhead. And in Tunguska, also in Russia, in the summer of 1908, an airburst at the end of a brilliant blue-white fireball flattened an area about 20 miles in radius, about the area inside the beltway of Washington, D.C. The blast was heard over 600 miles away. European observers, not knowing of the blast because of the communication systems in place at the time, noticed a reddish haze high up in the atmosphere. Evidence suggests perhaps a small asteroid or meteoroid 30 meters in diameter was the culprit. If such an object had exploded over New York City, the entire city would have been wiped out. Telescopic views of our moon reveal lots and lots of craters, as do spacecraft photographs of other solid bodies in our solar system. Even Earth has its scars. Behringer Crater out in Arizona may have been caused by a meteoroid or small asteroid about 150 meters or 160 feet in diameter, slamming into that area about 50,000 years ago. Even here in Kentucky, there are depressions that have been identified as possible impact craters. Collectively, these observations point to the fact that we live in a shooting gallery. Though much has been done by scientists around the world to get their governments on board to funding efforts to find unknown marauders that could cause damage locally, regionally, or nationally, little money has been forthcoming. Here in the U.S., NASA was charged by Congress back in 2005 in the NASA Authorization Act to locate 90% of near-Earth objects of a size of about 140 meters across or larger but Congress has failed to follow up on money for such a project. In December 2018, NASA officials emphasized the need for a satellite called Near-Earth Object Camera, or NEOCAM. They indicated that even if funding for the project continued, it would still be well beyond the 2020 deadline Congress mandated to find that range of objects. With no money, NASA would have to rely on ground-based telescopes. This would further extend the time period necessary to find all such bodies at the level of the Congressional mandate. A visit to the NEOCAM website reads, The Near-Earth Object Camera, NEOCAM, is a new mission that is designed to discover and characterize most of the potentially hazardous asteroids that are near the Earth. NEOCAM consists of an infrared telescope and a wide-field camera operating at thermal infrared wavelengths. Discovering near-Earth objects is not enough. We need to characterize them and understand their physical properties so that we can take appropriate action should one be found on an Earth-threatening trajectory. Infrared observations is key to all of this. Asteroids and meteoroids tend to be dark objects. The majority are small objects, comparatively speaking. Small, dark objects do not reflect lots of sunlight, their only source of visible light but they have some temperature, and this means that they glow in the infrared. Ground-based visible light telescopes can't be of much help, but a space-based infrared sensitive scope could be, since most infrared radiation does not make it through our atmosphere to the ground. 
Estimates are that combining the efforts of ground-based telescopes along with NEOCAM, if launched by 2020, would likely yield the 90% level required by the Congressional mandate by the 2030s, well after the 2020 mandate year. Reliance on ground-based telescopes alone would require 30 years or more to reach the requirement. At this point, about one-third of the estimated 25,000 bodies larger than 140 meters in diameter have been cataloged. So we are a long way at present from finding out if there is a killer asteroid on the horizon. Not only is NASA mandated to find such objects, but to design possible missions to do something about discovered possible threats. One test project called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, is proposed to be launched in 2020. It is designed to demonstrate the feasibility of hitting a target body and directing it away from Earth. This $313 million project would test one of several different types of planetary protection methods that have been proposed and still needs funding to move forward. Last year, the Trump administration canceled one of the other method programs, the Asteroid Redirect Mission, which would have demonstrated the feasibility of deploying a gravity tractor, sort of an asteroid tug, which would move the target to a new course over time. The third proposal would be to use nuclear explosions near the object, again with the idea of nudging the body into a new trajectory away from Earth. This latter method would be effective for large bodies, say in the 300 meter diameter range, or if the body was not noticed early enough. The other two methods work well with a long warning time, say years in advance. All of these methods assume the design of a capable launch vehicle, which itself may take five years from proposal to development. Now some of this may sound like Chicken Little crying that the sky is falling, but the evidence is there that there are bodies that can threaten us. There is a 100% probability that the Earth will be struck again, likely by an object big enough to do significant regional or national damage. Chicken Little was struck on the head by a nut and a completely random act of very small percentage. The chances of the Earth being hit are much higher. You're currently listening to Bench Talk, the week in science at WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. Have you heard about these huge ancient termite mounds that were documented in Brazil? They're in the drier part of Brazil, the northeastern part, and people didn't know how many there were until farmers started clearing out the land for establishing pastures. They saw all these huge mounds. The natural surroundings where these mounds are are normally filled with semi-arid scrubland. It's dominated by these thorny, deciduous shrubs, so it's not a real tropical-looking place. And the mounds are averaging 7 or 8 feet tall, 27 feet across. So it's a huge mound, bigger than a person. And they're regularly spaced from one another. And the photos of the mounds are amazing. They are in such an even pattern when you see them from outer space. It looks like someone intelligent actually placed them there, very evenly spaced. And what's amazing is how many of these mounds there are. It's estimated that there are tens of millions of these mounds covering an area about the size of Great Britain. Now these termites are not the same ones that are drilling holes in your wooden house. The scientific name is Centermes dyrus, and it's one of the largest termites known on Earth, about a half inch long. 
So what centermes termites do is build underground tunnels and they've got to put that dirt somewhere and so what they'll often do is mound the dirt above the tunnels and that's what you're seeing here. Now the researchers say that there are still living termite populations associated with these mounds so the species is still active there but the mounds also appear to be very very old. They're comparable to the ancient termite mounds that have been found in Africa already. There isn't any real internal structure to the termite mound, just a large central tunnel that the termites use to travel through and then dump the soil. And the single tunnel is about three inches wide. So these mounds are just big dumping grounds for the underground tunnels that must be beneath the mound. Now researchers believe that it takes several years to build just one mound. And there are tens of millions of these mounds, so it's taken a long period of time to develop this field of mounds. Now radioactive dating was used to determine the age of the soil in the mounds, and it came out to vary between 700 years ago and 3,800 years ago. So these termites have been around making these mounds for almost 4,000 years. Most termite mounds like this have an intricate network of tunnels to provide ventilation to the insects, but not these. These mounds just look like they're dumping grounds. So there must be some amazingly large tunnels beneath these mounds. And don't forget, this is a termite that's a half inch long. If you want to see some pictures or videos of these mounds, you can visit the article itself to see some. It is published in the journal called Current Biology in the November 19, 2018 issue. And we will post this article on our Facebook page when we can. So these termite mounds are still very mysterious. Why don't they have a more complex structure? Why are there so many of them? And why are they so large? And what is responsible for how evenly spaced the mounds are? Hopefully researchers will develop answers to these questions in the future. Well, if you've lived in this part of the country very long, you've probably noticed this tree, the American beech tree. Beech trees are native to this part of the country. They occur from southern Canada all the way down to the Florida panhandle. Well, something bad is now happening to the American beech tree. A disease is attacking them. Actually, wintertime is one of the best times to spot the American beech. These trees have a very thick, strong trunk with very smooth bark. If you see a tree trunk where people have carved their initials in it, it's very likely a beech tree. Beech trees also produce a characteristic bud during the winter months. The buds are in the shape of a tiny pointy cigar. Another distinctive feature of beech trees is the fact that even though they are not evergreens, most of the leaves seem to remain on the tree all winter. So the leaves do dry up and turn brown by the time winter comes around, but they're still attached to the tree. Now there's other trees that'll do this. There's pin oak, for instance, especially the lower branches will have leaves on it. But if you see a tree with very smooth bark and leaves on it in the middle of the winter, it's probably an American beech. Well, this beech tree disease was first noticed back in 2012 in the northeastern part of Ohio near Cleveland. Here, some of the younger beech trees started producing dark green patches between the veins of the leaves. 
Then the leaves got darker throughout and would shrink and crinkle. And as the disease gets worse, it causes those cigar-shaped buds to just fall off the tree, meaning that there's not going to be as many new leaves forming the next spring. So it takes several years. It takes about three years for this so-called beech leaf disease to have its way. The tree just dies. It was a biologist working for the Parks Department near Cleveland, Ohio, back in 2012. He's the one who first noticed the disease, and he sought the advice of a molecular chemical ecologist at Ohio State University, asked him to come out and look at it, and they kept an eye on these, this tree and these couple trees for a few years, just trying to figure out what was going on. Now, in a situation like this, there's lots of things that could cause signs of disease. Sure, it could be an infection by some sort of a pathogen, like a bacteria or a virus or a fungus, but it could also be due to pollution damage, cold weather damage, heat damage, waterlogging of the soil, too much shade, lack of nutrients, insect damage. There could have even been a natural mutation in the plant. They wouldn't have immediately known that it was a microorganism causing this disease, so it took a few years to figure that out. Ah, but then the disease started spreading. Since its initial outbreak in Cleveland in 2012, beech leaf disease has spread to 10 more counties in Ohio. It's also spread to Pennsylvania, New York, and southern Canada. Symptoms like this that spread that quickly in so many different environments, it's probably due to some sort of pathogenic organism. It's probably due to a disease causing bacteria, virus, or fungus. These original two biologists, along with some others at The Ohio State University and the Cleveland Park System, just published a paper about this disease in the December 25, 2018 issue of the journal called Forest Pathology. In their paper, these biologists basically say that they're pretty sure it's either a bacteria, virus, or a fungus that's causing beech leaf disease, but they aren't sure what it is yet. Now, you think it would be pretty easy to identify what pathogen it is that's causing a disease, but it's actually quite a challenge to do that. Microbiologists follow what's called Koch's postulates to really establish that there is a causative relationship between a microbe and a disease. Robert Koch developed these guidelines back in 1884, and they were really valuable in identifying the bacteria behind diseases like cholera and tuberculosis. Now, Koch's postulates don't work that great with diseases caused by viruses, however. So diseases like HIV causing AIDS, it's a little harder to prove that using Koch's postulates. So they've sort of gone beyond Koch's postulates these days. Now they're using something called Bradford Hill Criteria which consists of nine principles, not just four, that Koch's postulates follow. But let's not even go to Bradford Hill criteria. Let's just talk about what Koch's postulates are. So here's what Robert Koch thought you had to do back in 1884 to show that there is a specific causative agent behind a particular disease. First of all, you should find that agent, you should find that microbe in the disease tissue, and it should be in relatively large quantities, too. But that pathogen should not be in healthy organisms. Secondly, you should be able to grow this microorganism that you think is causing the disease. You should be able to grow that in the laboratory to get a pure culture. And then third, you should be able to infect healthy hosts 
with this pathogen and then those plants for instance should show signs of the disease and then finally once you've inoculated a healthy plant with this purified species of organism and then it becomes diseased you should be able to extract that microorganism from the inoculated tissue in other words you have to go full circle you've got to isolate the pathogen from the organism culture it separately in the lab and then reinfect the plant or the animal that you think is the host and then see if you can cause a disease to happen again only if you go through all that can you feel comfortable that you have determined which fungus which virus which bacteria is actually causing the disease and like I say these days they're following nine criteria back then it was only those four and they're pretty hard to achieve the authors of this paper tried to calculate the economic impact of losing a bunch of American beech trees in Ohio. They estimated that if half of the beech trees in Ohio died, it could mean $225 million of ecological services, like filtering water and sequestering carbon, and then don't forget beech trees provide food for countless animals. Now until they're really confident about what it is that's causing this disease, there isn't much to be done really except just monitoring the disease, gathering more data about its infection properties, how fast it works, what direction is the infection occurring, maybe they could limit the transport of wood in the future, maybe they could screen for new varieties of beech tree that are disease resistant. Now so far it looks like the disease is spreading eastward and northward from northeastern Ohio. So it's not really heading towards Kentucky, but I would not be surprised if it starts to show up in Kentucky sometime in the future. Now they reported in this paper that beech leaf disease has apparently infected two other species of beech, the oriental beech and the European beech. That's unfortunate because that means that this disease could even spread to other continents. So let's keep our fingers crossed for the mighty American beech tree. Well, I'm excited to tell you that we have a special contribution on this topic today. A local writer, Dr. Leslie Moise, wrote a special poem about beech trees, and we are honored to have her read it for you today. Here is Leslie Moise's poem. I love beech trees, for their wide-spreading crowns of corrugated leaves, for their sweet nuts that feed bears, squirrels, and white-tailed deer. But most of all, I love their smooth gray bark, an invitation to passing hikers, artists, lovers to carve their initials and gain immortality for as long as the beech tree stands. Indeed, for as long as the beech tree stands. Thanks to Dr. Moise for that lovely poem. Leslie Moise, that's spelled M-O-I-S-E, is a local author and teacher. She's published three books so far, a novel, a memoir, and a book of poetry. Check her out when you can. We're honored to have her contribution on this story. Thanks, Leslie. And let's keep our fingers crossed for the mighty American beach. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. 
You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. Mm -hmm.